The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. No matter what stage of life you're in, we long to live a life that is meaningful. We long to live a life that means something beyond even just our own opinion. And this passage lets us know resoundingly that that is the case. Our life counts. We also long for our life to have lasting significance beyond just how we've lived in this life. And this passage makes clear that how we live, how we exercise our work and our calling matters significantly forever. Let me just remind you of the setting where we are in Matthew 24 and 25. This is the fourth of four parables that Jesus gives to talk about how we should live in the light of the end. And this is the fifth of the five public discourses that Jesus has in the Gospel of Matthew. And this discourse is fittingly about the end. In fact, it's all prompted from Matthew 24, verse 3, when the disciples ask Jesus, what will be the sign of the end, of of your coming, of the end of all ages? And in this two chapters, Jesus is teaching us how to live in light of the fact that there is a final verdict, that the Creator does call into account all of His creatures. And so today's passage is extremely relevant because it's about how we live well and how our life's work can matter for eternity. Thus, the title of today's sermon is Faith, Work, and Eternity. Let's see the truth from God's Word together. In Matthew 25, look down at verse 14. We're going to walk through the parable together, see some principles from it, and then if you have a bulletin at the very end, we'll drill into those three applications. All right, first walking through the parable. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like. What will be like? You have to go back to Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven. And what's the kingdom of heaven in this context, 24 and 25? It's about the king's return to establish his kingdom. So this is what life is like while we wait for the creator to call us into account. This is how we should live while we wait for the king to return and call us into account. Verse 14. So it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. Now, please don't miss the pronouns in this te- they're very, very important. These are all his servants who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Whose property is it? His. Whose servants are these? His. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. This may sound silly, but the word talent, I read pages and pages of commentary on just what that one word means. The Greek word is talenton, but to make it as simple as I can, it refers to, well, I think the NIV does well. It translates bags of gold. So this is money. You're thinking, how much money? (laughs) And I've heard different pastors try to give a, a quick mathematical number to it. None of the numbers they give are helpful because currency changes value. It fluctuates. So here's the simplest way to explain it. One talent is worth 20 years of income. 
So picture a well-paying job, and you do it for 20 years. That's how much just one of these is worth. They're his talents given to his servants to care for his property. Now that's what the master has given. Now let's talk about the servants. Notice verse 15. To one he gave five, to another two, to another one. Now don't miss this phrase. To each according to his ability. The master makes an assessment of the servant and gives them disparate amounts. F.D. Bruner writes, In the kingdom of Christ, not all are created equal, nor is everyone expected to perform at the same level, but all are expected to do their best with what they are given. Now, contrary to our modern sense of fairness, which is rooted in equity, the idea that everyone gets exactly the same thing, or our American dream, which is rooted in the idea that anyone can achieve the exact same outcome. The Bible tells us the truth like it is. We do not all have the same starting point. We do not all have the same capacities. We do not all receive the same gift. Now our culture has started to realize that, and it's become a problem. But the Bible actually gives great encouragement Though we do not all have the same starting point, and though we do not all have the same capacities, there is one person capable of accurately assessing us in light of all the factors unique about us. Hence, there is justice. Each is given according to his own ability. Now, the question is, how will they steward such an enormous gift? Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once, immediately, and traded with them. And he made five talents more. Verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So both the guy given five and the guy given two, the word at once and the word also, they immediately, the moment they received this incredible grace, immediately steward it in a way that actually causes it to yield the amount that they were given. Now, I, I want to point out a phrase, the phrase traded with them. That phrase um, does not mean they played the stock market. <laughs> it, it's, it's a phrase that actually means through entrepreneurial exercise, they diligently labored and gave increase. I want to point that out so that you don't think they got five talents and they went to Vegas. That is not what the text is teaching. They received a great gift and worked laboriously with it. But not all of them did. Look in verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid, don't miss the pronoun, his master's money. This one decided to take no chance to make any profit and tried to mitigate any risk that he would have any loss. Now hear this, especially in our cultural moment right now. An abundance of caution, as we'll see later in the passage, an abundance of caution can be damningly evil. In our moment where we hear that phrase so often, an abundance of caution can be damningly evil. Now we continue verse 19. Now after a long time, and if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, you know how important this phrase is. 
This is the third time in Jesus's four parables he has pointed out that his return would have a delay. Chapter 24, verse 48, he said, If that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed. Chapter 25, verse 5, As the bridegroom was delayed. And now here, chapter 25, verse 19, After a long time. Jesus is clearly indicating that the end will come after a delay. But see, the delay creates opportunity to forget that the end will come. So notice the verse continues. After a long time, the master of the service did come and settle accounts with them. The final day may be delayed longer than we should think, but make no mistake, the final day will come. Now verses 20 through 21, we see the commendation. Verse 20, he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't want to move past verse 21 too quickly because I found four things in it that I think are amazing. Here's the first. He praises the servant personally. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is a personal commendation, a look-you-in-the-eye commendation. Not only does he praise him personally, he praises him for his particular stewardship. You have been faithful over a little. He takes into account what he's been faithful over. Furthermore, his promotion is to future privilege and increased responsibility. You've been faithful over a little, therefore I will set you over much. But here's my favorite part of the commendation. This results in celebration with the master. Enter into the joy of your master. Meaning that their working relationship does not have a dividing line between it, but is personal in its celebratory response. Now verses 22 through 23 are the second talent servant. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But did you notice they were both commended the same way? Here's why that's so important. If you were the two-talent servant and you now have four talents, But you compared yourself to the five-talent servant who now has ten talents. You might think, compared to him, I'm a failure. But that's not how the master saw it. The master does not assess the servants compared to fellow servants. The master assesses the servants based on what he entrusted them with according to their ability. Had he compared, he would have been broken. But instead, he's blessed because he's commended by the master individually. Now, verse 24 brings us to the third, the one-talent servant. Notice the first phrase. He also who had received the one talent came forward. Can I point out to you that every servant comes forward to be assessed by the master? There are no exceptions. But this servant does something different. He tries to justify his failure by shifting the blame to the master as rationalization 
for his own dereliction. Now notice how verse 24 continues. He came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. The Greek word means cruel or domineering. Reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. He's accusing the master of being exploitative. Of actually theft of what he would see increased. Verse 25 So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now notice in verse 25, this third person, the one with only one talent, views himself as a victim. He was oppressed by the master. So he surely was right to go hide his talent in the ground. And you should read the tone of the last phrase, Here, take what is yours as, take this and leave me alone. You see, unlike the five and two talent servant, there's a different person speaking here, isn't there? (laughs) When the five talent servant is assessed, only the master speaks. When the two talent servant is assessed, only the master speaks. But when the one talent servant comes forward for assessment, he speaks on his own behalf. Thinking that his assessment of himself could be the final word for his life. Isn't it so sad how often we think, well, I believe that I've lived well. We should listen to Paul, who says your assessment of me, or even my assessment of myself, is not ultimately very much. It is the Lord who assesses me. D.A. Carson writes on this passage, what the servant overlooks is his responsibility to his master and his obligation to discharge his assigned duties. I told you earlier to notice the pronouns. These are his servants. This is his property. This was his talent. Carson concludes, grace never condones irresponsibility. Even those given less are obligated to use and develop what they were given. But now the next part of the passage is actually my favorite. If you've ever been in a dispute, perhaps in your own home, and you have your own words quoted back to you, you're in trouble. (laughs) Verse 26, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. And now he's going to quote his own words back to him. Oh, so you knew that I reap where I've not sown? You knew that I gather where I've scattered no seed? That's your argument? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. The servant is wicked and slothful. The Greek word haranos means to be complacent or hesitant in a self-preserving way. The master points out you should have at least given me interest on what was mine rather than it buried in the ground. And now the servant will lose even what he was granted. And ironically, it will be given to one more faithful. Verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. Lest you think that is just indicative of this parable. 
Jesus has repeated this principle three times in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 13, he actually repeats it verbatim. There he's talking about the parables, and his disciples come to him and say, why do you speak to them in parables? And he says, because to you only have been given the fruit of the kingdom. And then he says this in verse 12, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. This is Matthew 13, verse 12. And but from the one who has not, even what he was given will be taken away. This is a principle not just for the nation of Israel. This is a principle of how God has designed creation. Every created being is given grace by his creator. And those who don't steward grace will have it revoked. That is how God has created his world. Now verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Jesus' most common used description of life apart from God eternally. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that the one talent servant's refusal to receive the master's gift and his choice to slander the master now has separated him from the master and all of the master's gracious gifts. Thus, the point of the parable would be that the absence of the master should be a time of investing and developing what the master has gifted to us, his servants. But now I want to give you five principles quickly, and then we'll go to the bulletin and drill into three applications. The five principles are not written for you anywhere. I'll go through those quickly, and then we'll drill into the three applications. The principles quickly. Number one, the master will hold every servant into account. Number two, the master does not and need not give each servant the same amount. Number three, the master expects his servants to steward his resources wisely, diligently, and expansively. Let me pause on this one for just a moment, though. Because as Americans, we tend to crudely assess things by the bottom line. And it would be easy to push this parable too far into thinking that God, the master, surely does the same. He just crunches the numbers. But we must remember that God has vision and purview that we do not. He sees what we don't. He sees faithfulness many places that we see failure. He sees unfaithfulness many places that we see success. Know that the master alone can make the ultimate assessment. Don't you remember from the parable? He assessed based on their ability and gave as he deemed. All right, now fourth principle. The servant's motivation has to do with his view of the master. Now the fifth principle. Faithfulness in the little prepares you for the much, which means how you live now matters later. All right. Now, today's passage is about talents, which are literally bags of gold. They are money. So the most direct connotations swirling in your, bond, in your mind may have to do with currency, budgeting, giving, and all of those applications would be appropriate. But we know the principle is broader, and in fact, our use of the English word talent sort of proves it, doesn't it? We now use the word talent to describe something much more than just money. But your gifts, your abilities your opportunities, 
your capacities, your station of life. And I think the best English word to capture that is the word calling. Your calling includes your gifts, your abilities, your interests, your capacities, your opportunities, which now prepares us to drill into the three applications on your bulletin. Because they help us understand that this parable gives us the principle for our work, our life's work. So number one, all work, our life's work, the way we use our life, must be shaped by faith. Because it is God who takes into account our life's work. Did you know that if we don't understand correctly where we're from and where all this is going... We won't live correctly in the middle. The origin of work or calling goes to the Garden of Eden. Before the entrance of sin, there was work. In the new heavens and in the new earth, the greater paradise, there will be work. And in the middle, how the servant stewards his calling matters. Now, non-Christian cultures do not see it that way. When it comes to the origin of work, I could give many examples. Let me just go with Greek thinking. Do you remember the Greek story of Pandora and Pandora's box? When Pandora's box is opened and all evil comes out of Pandora's box, do you know what one of the evil things is? Work. Because the idea is that work or calling or productivity surely is a bad thing. It must be inherently a burden. But in fact, in the Bible, in Genesis 2, God puts his hands in the dirt when he makes man. And then he makes man a worker after his own image. We are made to be productive servants of the master. Now, not only is our origin important, but our destiny is important. America is, um, well, we could have a debate about this over coffee. I think Americans are a slightly post-Christian culture. And as such, we have vestiges of Christianity, but they're imbued with a lot of secularism. Think about the way Americans think about heaven. (laughs) Most depictions I've seen of Americans in heaven look eerily similar to an American man cave or she shed. (laughs) There's no work. There's just relaxation. There's just self-indulgence. But didn't we read in the parable just now, the master told the servant, because you were faithful in a little, I'll give you increased responsibility forever. So actually, the way the Bible talks about our life's calling and work and productivity is not the way our American Christianese envisions it. See, our parable reminds us that life's calling, life's work is from God and for God. Colossians 3 says it directly. Verse 23, whatever you do, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward because you are serving the Lord Christ. So number one reminds us that all work has to be shaped by faith because if you don't know who's assessing the work, its origin and destiny, you won't work the right way. Number two on your bulletin. It's never about the work. Ultimately, it's about the motive that drives the work. It's not about what your calling is. It's about your motive in your calling. 
I'm going to draw out four implications from just number two. So it's going to be A, B, C, and D. Don't, don't, don't be lost. First implication underneath number two. This means there's no room for boasting or class condescension between what we deem important work or menial work based on ability or talent. Did you not notice that the two talent and the five talent were equally praised? Hence, if in our mind we're thinking, well, there, you know, there's, there's important white-collar work and then there's unimportant blue-collar work. Actually, the master does not see it that way. So there's no basis for class condescension based on how important you think your work or calling is. Also, this means that productivity is not actually what makes work good. But the proper motive is what enables the productivity. It was because the one-talent servant hated the master that he lacked any ability to step out and do something with the gift. A third implication of just number two. The value of work, the value of your life, your life's calling, is ultimately in relation to the master's well done. Not the approval of your fellow servants, nor the approval of yourself. The one talent servant thought he did great until the master let him know the truth. So also in this life there will be many times that we think we've done well when in fact we haven't actually had the approval of the master. A fourth reminder from just number two. Because it's not about the work, but the motive that drives the work. This reminds us that every good endeavor, whether we think it's menial or vital, is actually doing something, don't miss this, that the master wanted done. That's why the master gave them the talent, so that they could do something he wanted done. Now, Martin Luther figured this out about four or 500 years ago. And when he did, what resulted was a renaissance and enlightenment of the dignity of work that has faded but lasted for a while. Here's what he figured out. He read in the Psalms that God feeds the earth, not past tense, but present tense. God continues to feed the earth. So Luther thought about that. How is it that God feeds the earth? And then he thought through each way that God feeds the earth. And I'll use modern descriptions so it makes more sense. How is God feeding the earth now? Well, he uses the farmer He uses the truck driver. He uses the grocer. He uses the custodian. He uses the person who comes and purchases it and prepares it and cleans it. Do you see why it is such a crime to bury your talent? Because it's the thing God gave you specifically to do that no one else can do. There's the one, there's the two, and the five. They're all based on their own ability. You're to do the thing God made you uniquely capable of doing. But when you fail, you actually stunt the master's intention. Therefore, a good question for us over the last year, we're nearly at the end of 2021. How would the master assess my motive in my calling over this past year? Number three on your bulletin. This is very important. The wrong motive does more than curb productivity. It separates us from the master. The wrong motive doesn't just mean you're less productive. It means you're not with the master anymore. Do you know why? Because all work is done for someone or something. 
In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel is being built. That's a lot of work. It's the first skyscraper. Do you know why they did such hard work? They tell us in Genesis 11, verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. Hence, they were scattered from each other and separated from the master. How about Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar comes out and from his palace sees Babylon and says this in Daniel 4, verse 30. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? What happened in Nebuchadnezzar next? He was scattered by himself, unable to even think, separated from the master. Please don't miss the principle. Everyone who works for themselves will be separated from the master. Hence is the nature of living for yourself. Now, this is a subtle thing and you can't miss it. We get that with arrogance. We miss that with anxiety. Arrogance and anxiety are both self-preserving pride. So the talent who buried the one talent did so that he would not have to risk his self-worth or his work. See, arrogance and anxiety are both pride. He buried the one talent so because it's easier to do nothing and blame the master and preserve your own sense of self than it is to take a risk. Boasting and insecurity are both pride, but we can overcome that by looking away from ourselves. 1 John 5, 2 through 3 is my favorite here. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome for us. Again, Colossians three twenty three. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. Work without faith does not work. Richard France writes this, If we mistakenly view God as a hard taskmaster, it will be hard for us to respond to him in a loving and open way. We are to use his gifts responsibly and adventurously. But how can we do that? How can we use our life calling, whatever stage of life you're in? How can we use our work, whether you get a paycheck or not, is not the point. How can you use your calling, gifts, and abilities in a way that matter when it feels so risky? The only way you can do that is if you have assurance that your work matters. Though thorns invest the ground, you must have assurance that your life Matters Because if you don't have assurance, then you'll either labor or refuse to labor for self-preserving reasons. How can you have such assurance? Here's the great twist of the gospel. The master comes to do the work that the servants failed to do. See, Jesus actually comes to do God's good work work infinitely beyond our ability, yet work that was our responsibility. And he bears the wages of what our failures have accumulated. The wages of our sin is death. So what does the master do for his servants? He comes and bears their death so that he can pay our debt 
You see, the thorns that infest the ground become the thorns that are nailed to his head. And the work that ours was difficult is the work that he makes complete when on the cross he says it is finished. In Jesus alone, the master who dies for the servants, can we have assurance that our labor is not in vain? Even when our best efforts don't appear to be showing fruit, or if we have a whole year of the Mondays. <laughs> See, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight says this so succinctly. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. But wait, what's the therefore, therefore? How can you be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? What's the previous verse before verse 58? What does verse 57 say, 1 Corinthians 15? Here's what it says. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You can only know that your life is not in vain when your life is secured to the victory of Jesus. So there's two specific responses for me to call you to today. Two specific responses. Here's the first one. Trust in Jesus' work ultimately. Trust in Jesus' work ultimately. The one who has secured victory. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. The Son of Man gives himself for the servants. Rest in his work ultimately. But then number two, be diligent in your work as the master empowers and assures the success of your life. Be diligent. So because, thanks be to God, the victory is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now that diligence has many practical implications, but let me give one principle for us, Emmanuel Baptist Church. We've had a year-ish and a half, maybe two, of caution, of fear, and of anxiety. We must not bury our talent in the ground. For the Lord to return and find that in fear we decided to hide his gift would be a tremendous shame. Let us approach the new year thinking by the power of the master in five points and beyond we will invest the grace he has given us even if it takes risk. Let's pray together. Lord, the most important part of this passage is our view of the master. Perhaps some people in this room are thinking of you the wrong way. They think you're a hard and cruel task master. Remind them, you're the master who laid down his life for the sheep. So why would we fear when we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Why would I find the commandments of God burdensome when Jesus fulfilled the law in my place? If anything, that should free me to take faith-fueled risk. So help us to remember we have a very good master, an infinitely good father, and a Lord and Savior who has given everything for us. 
And he who did not spare his own son will surely graciously give us all things and be with us till the end of the age. Perhaps someone this morning needs to simply call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Remind us, Lord, that our work has significance in Christ's work and significance only when the motive is done for him. Because let's be honest, no assessment from any passing company or magazine matters when you stand before the master. But Lord, there are some of us that are fearful, that are unwilling to take risk, and we've convinced ourselves that that's okay. We've told ourselves that we're just simply being cautious. In reality, we're being self-preserving. We have moved the focus to ourselves, and therefore we have wasted and squandered what the Master gave us. We're actually mad the Master gave us a gift. That's how twisted our thinking has become. But our life is not over. So may today be a day of great change that will catapult risk and growth for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.